was a long time ago, longer now than it seems, in a place that perhaps you've seen in your dreams. For the story that you are about to be told began with the holiday worlds of old. Now you've probably wondered where holidays come from. If you haven't, I'd say it's time you begun. For the holidays are the result of much fuss and hard work for the worlds that create them for us. Well, you see now, quite simply, that's all that they do. Making one unique holiday, especially for you. But once a calamity ever so great occurred when two holidays met by mistake. Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. That's right. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> Merry Crisis. Merry Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa. That too. Did it in one. We, I can't. I just can't say that word, apparently. For all of you who listen to our Batman Returns episode, you know. I don't celebrate that particular holiday. It's a little <laughs> too combined and I can't say it. Oh. Oh. You're not very all-inclusive. I'm not. And so is the movie we're about to talk about today. Kind of. Really? Yeah. That's true. If you look at the the wood between the worlds. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, I also feel like they exclude everything that's not celebrated in America or by white people. So That's true. And I'm sure that we'll talk about that maybe a little bit. But of course, we are here talking about more Christmas horror adjacency. And we are doing The Nightmare Before Christmas, which is also Tim Burton adjacent. Most people think it's fully Tim Burton. I did. Until this weekend, I think I may have thought my entire life this movie was directed by Tim Burton. Wrong! So, The Nightmare Before Christmas is a 1993 American stop-motion animated musical dark fantasy film. Wow. Directed, I can say that, but I can't say Merry Christmas Quanta Quantica. <laughs> it was directed by Henry Selick, not Tim Burton, in his feature directorial debut. And it was produced and conceived by Tim Burton. He conceived this film in his womb. It tells the story of Jack Skellington, the king of Halloween Town, who stumbles upon Christmas Town and schemes to take over Christmas. Danny Elfman wrote the songs and score and provided the singing voice of Jack. The other principal voice cast included Chris Sarandon, Catherine O'Hara, William Hickey, Ken Page, Paul Rubens, Glenn Shaddix, and Ed Ivory. Hmm. Burton, who was then employed at Walt Disney Feature Animation, wrote a three-page poem titled The Nightmare Before Christmas. Drawing inspiration from television specials of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, and the poem A Visit from St. Nicholas. Nightmare marked Burton's third consecutive film with a Christmas setting. Burton could not direct because of his commitment to Batman Returns, and he did not want to be involved with the, quote, painstakingly slow process of stop motion. (laughs) Who does? All right, listeners. Just because you cannot see it doesn't mean you can't believe it. This is The Nightmare Before Christmas. Welcome to an extraordinary world filled with magic and wonder. Open your mind and let yourself go to a place where every day is Halloween and every night Jack Skellington I am the Pumpkin King! dreams of something different. What 
is this? It's someplace new. Jack, look out! Whoa! What's this? What's this? There's color everywhere. What's this? There's white things in the air. What's this? I can't believe my eyes. I must be dreaming. Wake up, Jack. This isn't fair. What is this? Haven't you heard of peace on earth and goodwill toward men? <laughs> Touchstone Pictures presents the enchanting story of two very special dreamers and the holiday spirit that brought them together. From the imagination of Tim Burton comes The Nightmare Before Christmas. And what did Santa bring you, honey? Apparently, holidays exist in real life. Gasp! We only celebrate them because they are magical worlds creating all of the traditions that waspy Americans enjoy so much. The entrances to these worlds lie deep in a forest. One such world is Halloween Town, a fantasy land populated by various monsters, ghouls, and beings one might associate with the holiday. The citizens of this world annually put on a Halloween extravaganza and somehow... The trickle-down effect makes its way to our normal existence. Jack Skellington, voiced by Chris Sarandon, is hailed as the Pumpkin King of Halloween Town and always presides over the yearly festivities. But this year, Jack is deep in his feelings. He's grown tired of the same old routines. He wants to shake up his life, to find something new, to add some throb to his bone. <laughs> so, after the normal, boring Halloween, he takes a sad boy stroll through the woods with his ghost dog, Zero, and stumbles upon the entrances to the other holiday worlds. There's Thanksgiving, Easter, St. Patrick's Day, etc., etc., etc. You know, all the waspy American ones. Nary a Hanukkah door to be found. He falls into a door shaped like a decorated pine tree and is transported into a snowy wonderland where everyone's happy and things are generally cheerful. Christmas down. He loves it so much, he sings about it, but he's very confused. He returns to Halloween Town with various Christmas trinkets and an idea, and presents it to his fellow ghoulish citizens, but they have no concept of this holiday, and, in a very American way, assign their own beliefs to it. Your boy Jack is obsessed, though, and goes about trying to understand Christmas through studying in various experiments, a venture that proves ultimately fruitless. But, in a very American way, Jack wants Christmas for himself, so he decides that he'll take it and improve it. Thus, Hallmark was founded. <laughs> <laughs> and a whole channel was created. <laughs> Candace Cameron Bureau's career was born. <laughs> or for her actual fans, Bure. <laughs> Why do gays watch her? He can't improve Christmas all by himself, however, so he assigns tasks to his fellow citizens to make Christmas all their own. Resident mad scientist Dr. Finkelstein, voiced by William Hickey, is given the job of creating reindeer, while his ragdoll creation, Sally, voiced by Catherine O'Hara, is assigned to create a Santa Claus outfit. Sally is mad thirsty for Jack, but she doesn't quite believe that they should just be stealing holidays in some imperialist fashion. But Jack, in a very American, elected official's way, just won't listen. Jack gives the most important assignment to Lock, Shock, and Barrel, Halloween Town's most evil trick-or-treaters. They must kidnap Santa Claus and return him to Halloween Town in order for Jack's plan to succeed. 
but these trick-or-treaters work for Oogie Boogie, a villainous boogeyman made of burlap and bugs with a penchant for gambling and has a strong rivalry with Jack. <laughs> penchant. <laughs> Santa Claus is delivered into his clutches, which should mean certain doom for him. As the big night approaches, Sally has a vision of things going terribly awry and tries to warn Jack, who masculinely doesn't listen. She creates a fake fog to keep him from lifting off in his sleigh, but he notices his ghost dog Zero and his brilliantly lit nose. Jack appoints Zero to the front to guide the way, and they set off to bring a Halloweenish Christmas to the masses. But our world isn't having it. All the presents are spooky. And didn't we just have Halloween a couple months ago? Santa normally travels across the globe, but Jack can't seem to get out of America, because in a very American way, they decide to shoot him out of the sky with assault rifles and missiles. Meanwhile, Sally attempts to save Santa Claus, but is caught by Oogie Boogie, meaning certain doom for them both. The citizens of Halloween Town believe Jack to be dead, but in a very American way, he has actually survived, and, in a very un-American way, realizes that he was wrong to take something that didn't belong to him. <laughs> Sorry. Jesus. I guess that was, the, guess that was in my feelings just like Is this Jack our was. 4th of July episode? <laughs> Yeah, <clears throat> someone was in a mood when they wrote this. Holding true to his un-Americanness, Jack acts quickly to right the wrongs he has committed. <laughs> he flies back to Halloween Town and saves Sally and Santa by unraveling the strings that hold Oogie Boogie together, reducing him to a pile of bugs. Jack apologizes to Santa, who assures him that he can still save Christmas. As Halloween Town rejoices in Jack's survival, Santa delivers the shittiest gift of them all, snow. Somehow Snow, of all things, shows the townsfolk the true meaning of Christmas. Jack and Sally profess their love for one another, and everyone begins the slow trudge towards next Halloween. Just like us. <laughs> Perhaps a little better for their experiences, and certainly cold and wet from the snow. The. And. Well, someone was a rutkin salad when they were this. <laughs> I thought it was funny. I was cracking myself up when I was writing it. And then I read it through it and I was just like, wow, should I move? (laughs) (laughs) The Nightmare Before Christmas was released limitedly on October 13th, 1993 in an effort to catch the Halloween box office and get a jump on the holiday season. The film was initially to be released under the Disney animation lineup, but fearful that the film would not perform with their target demographic, the studio decided to release it under the more adult Touchstone label. The film would enter wide release on October 29th. During its first week in wide release, Nightmare Before Christmas earned a little more than $8 million at the box office, earning it the number one spot. The film would hold the number one spot for the following week and would remain in the top ten for six weeks. Ultimately, the film would earn $50 million during its initial run in the U.S. against a reported budget of $24 million, which Disney thought made the film a, quote, sleeper success. The film has subsequently been re-released several times in various formats and under the Disney animation label. The Nightmare Before Christmas holds a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes and is certified fresh. The audience score sits at 91%. The site's consensus reads, The Nightmare Before Christmas is a stunningly original and visually delightful work of stop-motion animation. <laughs> that is the driest consensus. <laughs> Audiences polled by Cinema Score gave the film a grade of B plus. All of that seems kind of begrudging. <laughs> yes, <laughs> just like everyone's reaction to Mad God. Okay. <laughs> 
The film was mostly unanimously praised by critics upon its release. Roger Ebert gave a highly positive review for Nightmare, and Ebert believed the film's visual effects were as revolutionary as Star Wars at the time, taking into account that Nightmare was filled with imagination that carries us into a new world. Oh. Peter Travers of Rolling Stone called it a restoration of originality and daring to the Halloween genre. This dazzling mix of fun and fright also explodes the notion that animation is kid stuff. It's 74 minutes of timeless movie magic. 74. Oh, I felt longer than that, didn't it? It's actually 76. Oh. You can't even get that <laughs> shit right. <laughs> James Bernardinelli stated, The Nightmare Before Christmas has something to offer just about everyone. For the kids, it's a fantasy celebrating two holidays. For the adults, it's an opportunity to experience light entertainment while marveling at how adept Hollywood has become at these techniques. There are songs, laughs, and a little romance. In short, The Nightmare Before Christmas does what it intends to entertain. Hmm. <laughs> <clears throat> like that guy. Let's see. Someone was paid under the table. <laughs> Destin Thompson of the Washington Post enjoyed the film's similarities to the writings of Oscar Wilde, weirdly, and the Brothers Grimm, as well as The Cabinet of Dr. Calgary and other Germanist expressionist films. Huh, weird. It's like we recognize that in our last deep dive about Tim Burton. That's right. He sometimes likes things like that. I recognize him as a whole subgenre offshoot of German expressionism. I would completely agree with that. However, does The Nightmare Before Christmas remind you about Oscar Wilde at all? No. No. What an odd thing to say, Dessen. <laughs> True critics stabbed from the front. That's right. Dessen, bastard. <laughs> it did get some accolades, or at least nominated. It did win, like, a, a couple. But at the Academy Awards, it was nominated for Best Visual Effects, but lost, of course, a hard year to Jurassic Park. Yeah, it didn't stand a fucking chance. At the Saturn Awards, it was nominated for Best Director and Best Special Effects, but it won Best Fantasy Film and Best Music. Wow. Mm. At the Dallas-Fort Worth Film Critics Association Awards. I have to add them when I can. It was nominated for Best Picture along the likes of Schindler's List, which it lost to. <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> I looked at the other nominees, and I can't remember what they are all. It's mostly the stuff from that year that was really good. So it was like, good movie, good movie, good movie, good movie. Nightmare Before Christmas. No one could feel good about that. <laughs> okay, Schindler's List is good, but what about Nightmare Before Christmas? <laughs> no, I'm starting to think that the people of DFW have a questionable taste level. <laughs> Including us. How many critics are in DFW? I don't know. Two? <laughs> it's, it's me and you. Shit. <laughs> me and you and then like one other person. So it won Best Animated Film there, though. Yeah. I don't know why it was up for both. Uh, I mean, that happens sometimes, but this, like, this was way before... The Oscars even had a best animated film category. Oh. Like that was only created. How progressive. I know. Look at DFW being progressive for mm. once. I don't know. We're pretty progressive. When it, when it comes to animated films. When it comes to the surrounding rural areas. <laughs> That's true. When it comes to the suburbs. But uh, yeah. So, I mean, like, I feel like uh, they added that animated category years after Beauty and the Beast was nominated for best picture because people threw a fucking fit. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's safe to say that The Nightmare Before Christmas has become a cult classic, with Disney fully embracing its success. It has been re-released several times and continues to prove to be a merchandising juggernaut. It has earned its place in pop culture and can be almost inescapable between the months of October through December each year. I've somehow escaped it for 22 years. Uh, Have you been into a store, though? Oh, I see it everywhere. Yeah. You know, but I don't, you know, I think I saw it all the way through like 20 years ago. But ever since then, I haven't, you know, and I didn't see it any time when it came out. So I saw it probably around 2002. That's what I'm trying to say. 
So I saw this movie in the theater probably like five or six times. Oh my God. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, when I really, really liked it when I was like 13, 14 years old, like, I, yeah. I mean, cause I like, I like spooky things or whatever. And I was a much nicer person back then. One so, thing I like, remember is just constantly seeing the ads in my comic books. Oh really? Yeah. That and Frighteners for some reason. Another good movie. But um, yeah, I saw this movie a lot. I liked the soundtrack. I knew all the fucking songs, you know, like I just, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, But you know, seasons change and people become different people. That's true. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about this cast a little bit. Let's do it. Let's talk about Chris Sarandon, who's the speaking voice. And the only other thing I think I know him from is that vampire movie. Fright uh, Fright Night. Fright Night. As well as The Princess Bride. Yes, he's in Princess Bride. And he's probably in the Christopher Guest verse troop. I don't maybe think so. No? Okay. Maybe he's in the the other Sarandon's troop, or I guess not anymore. <laughs> yeah. No, that's that's been decidedly taken away from him. But um he's really good in Fright Night. You know, he's one of the best vampires out there. And uh Denny Elfman, of course, did the singing voice as Jack Skellington. Uh, a skeleton known as the Pumpkin King of Halloween Town, as we have said before. Sarandon was cast to match Elfman's voice style. But Elfman also voiced Beryl, one of the trick-or-treaters working for the Oogie Boogie, the clown with the tearaway face, which is a self-described clown who rides a unicycle. I am the clown with the tearaway face! <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Here in a flash and gone without a trace. But enough about Danny Elfman. <laughs> and Chris Sarandon? <laughs> Yes. Well, we're going to get into Danny Elfman later because, you know, it's inevitable because he, you know, composed the whole thing and did all the songs and voiced everything. Yeah. I mean, he was he was this movie. Yes. He was was. the soul of this film. Kind of. I think this this movie is a two spirit. (laughs) (laughs) Out of five spirits. (laughs) At least. And the indomitable Catherine O'Hara. Indubitably. I love Catherine O'Hara. Yeah, she played Sally, the ragdoll Frankenstein's monster-like creation of Finkelstein and, of course, Jack's love interest. Uh, she's a, apparently a toxicologist <laughs> <laughs> who uses various types of poisons to liberate herself from the captivity of her quote-unquote father. She's also a psychic and has premonitions when anything bad is about to happen. Uh, and so O'Hara had obviously previously co-starred in Burton's Beetlejuice... And uh, I'm kind of surprised with how high her voice seems and how girlish it seems. Yeah. Because I don't really attribute that to her. And so she did an amazing job, I thought. She always does whenever she's in things. I mean, she's just a really good actress, period. Right. And I that goes straight into voice work, too. Because it didn't sound anything like Catherine O'Hara. When no. I was a kid and watching this and I saw who did the voice, I was like, you got to be fucking kidding me. Like, there's no way in the world I would have thought that was yeah. her. So... But Sally is also like one of my favorite characters in this movie. And her song is my favorite song. Yeah. I mean, I like it. You know, it's the most melancholy. It is. I was going to say it's very melancholy. And I, I just, I love the melody of it. It's more melancholy than the song that has lament in it. Well, that one does too, right? Sally's lament and Jack's lament. There's Mm -hmm. like two different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe I should get a little too nerdy about the soundtrack. I could literally fill the rest of this podcast episode by singing Suddenly, Jack is <laughs> <laughs> standing beside me. Wait, He's what? right inside you. <laughs> <laughs> That's not right. We also have William Hickey as Dr. Finkelstein. And I recognized his voice. And of course, you had to tell me. That it was the same guy that was in um, the anthology that we watched recently. Tales from the Dark Side. Yeah. Yeah. As the old man in the cat. Yeah. The cat one. Mm -hmm. The cat from hell segment of Tales from the Dark Side. But William Hickey is 
everywhere, right? Especially around Christmas time because everyone likes National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. And he's in that movie, right? William Hickey has a very, very distinct voice. Yes. Right? He just sounds like the most curmudgeonly old man. Uh, then we get uh, Glenn Shaddix as the mayor of Halloween Town. And he was in Beetlejuice, but I don't know that he was in anything else. Who did he play in Beetlejuice? I think he was one of like the the guests or oh yeah, I think something like that. But see the guest or he was the interior decorator guy. So maybe yeah, yeah I don't know. But uh, the character's wild mood uh, swings go from happy to distraught because his head spins between happy and sad. Where some career politicians are described as figuratively two-faced the mirror is literally so so it's supposed to be you know an analogy for politicians maybe this movie is as pointed as my synopsis and no one just got it until i wrote that i don't know it seems (laughs) anti-consumerist consumerism (laughs) that's exactly what it is (laughs) more than it is about politics but i don't know uh so ken page as oogie boogie who continues to do the live shows with danny elfman really yeah and uh, he, of course, played the the villainous boogeyman in Halloween Town, who has a passion for gambling and a rivalry with with Jack. So Ken Page also played Old Deuteronomy in the original Broadway production of Cats, which we also brought up in the last. That's right, but only in part of my shitty synopsis. <laughs> that was so funny. Though. <laughs> it was one of my favorite parts, actually. I laughed because I hate cats, but I seem to know all the fucking characters and songs. <laughs> Mr. Mistopheles? <laughs> Mr. Mistopheles. And Rumple Teaser? <laughs> so uh, Ed Ivory uh, played Santa Claus, and I'm not sure about, about that actor, but of course, I don't know. They call him Sandy Claus in Halloween Town. Yeah, I feel like Jack was trying to um, – <clears throat> get them on board and plus he misheard it too right he was like sandy claus he must have got his attention but yeah that was the one thing that got the townspeople on board he was just like the description of sandy claus and how menacing he was and that's you know what pushed them over into the christmas yeah and that also kind of makes me like thematically like i wished it was more of a contrast because santa's kind of an asshole in this movie oh yeah like he's not super thankful he's just you know it seemed like he his rescue was completely expected and he took it for granted well, he was rescued by the person who orchestrated his kidnapping. What does he have to be thankful for? That's true. But at the same time, um, he he recognized immediately that it was out of it came out of a good place. Like Jack really wanted to create a good Christmas for people based on what he thought, you know, beauties in the eye of the beholder type of situation. Like he thought everyone would enjoy these, you know, monsters in a sack type of <laughs> presence, you know, and uh, I, I really almost wanted a scene at the end where it shows him showing people enjoying the real you know nature of of christmas and and saving it together oh you know because it kind of just ends you know well he does with him provide the snow right and Which, he says merry christmas jack from the air but i feel like the reason they didn't save christmas together was because santa claus was being like know your place yeah <laughs> and it is here in halloween Keep your place. Had to work Tilda a little bit here. <laughs> I just got all the references today. <laughs> so uh, Paul Rubens, of course, Pee Wee Herman, uh, played Locke, one of the trick-or-treaters working for Oogie Boogie. And Rubens and Burton obviously had previously worked on Pee Wee's Big Adventure and Batman Returns together. Of course, he, as we just explained last week, uh, he was only in as a stand-in for uh, uh, Meredith Burgess, I mm-hmm. guess, which is the original Penguin. Yep. And just showed up as a favor. So, And it worked out. Yeah. Um, I like those characters. I like Lock, Shock, and Barrel. I do. I also like that song. That's probably one of my favorite songs. I wonder what this world would be like without Paul Rubens. 
Oh my God. Do I even want to think about it? No, I don't. <laughs> so Frank Welker uh, played Zero the dog. And I don't remember that dog making any kind of noise, but you know, it barked. I, I, okay. Well, Frank Welker as Zero. Jack's pet ghost dog who has a tiny pumpkin for on his nose. It's a pumpkin? Uh, yeah, apparently. A lit jack, jack-o'-lantern. He happens to be the third highest grossing actor of all time at $17 billion box office. Um, excuse me? It's the most highest grossing actor you've never heard of. Who the fuck is this? He does voices for basically everything. And including most of the Transformers, it seems like. Oh. And so all of the Transformer movies that he's been in and all of the other big animated features that he's been in, based on all their gross, he is the highest um, of a non a non-lead role character. That is... A fun fact. I know I should have put it there, but <laughs> oh my god, no, it fits right here perfectly. Yeah, because I, I I checked him out and I was just like, okay, and hap- I don't I don't know why I clicked on him, but um, you know, doing a little bit more research, I saw like part of his headline on his bio was that he was the third, and I I checked it out and it was true. So who's the first? Um, I don't know. I don't know. We'll save that because I, I I scrolled back up to the lead roles, right? And oh, it's okay. basically oh Samuel L. Jackson is number one. Really? Yeah, that's also shocking to me. A little Jurassic bit. Park and all the Marvel movies. That's please. true. Yeah, you're right. You know, and everything else he's been in. But if um, I were Frank Welker, man, every time I went to a party, I'd be like, "Hello, I'm Frank. I'm the third highest grossing actor of all time." Do I forget who was number two. Probably Chris Sarandon. <laughs> <laughs> Chris Sarandon. <laughs> No, but there's a, there's a primary list above that list, which is only lead roles. And so it's basically populated by every Marvel character actor that's showed up because they have like 20 movies to pull from. And they take that 20 movie gross. Even if you had a cameo, you make you're included, you know, technically on that list. And uh, like Zoe Saldana has been in Avatar and a bunch of Marvel movies and then also the Star Trek series. And so she's a big person on that list. It's almost like cheating, though. Yeah, I don't know. But, I mean, those movies make a lot of money. It, so these aren't, well these aren't meaningful lists. or It's just interesting. It is interesting. And I know. I mean, that is also just goes to show you how much money some of these movies make. Yeah. Because right? I kind of remember this film making a shit ton of money. Yeah. It, but it wasn't, you know. But this is 1993. Money's different. Sleeper hit. And of course, it's <laughs> yeah. made a bunch of money since then on home media and oh, soundtrack re-releases and all of the live product. Yeah. But, I mean, when That's I saw that it had made $50 million that year and that was it, just I mean, in America. But I was just like, that doesn't seem right. Like I contributed a lot of that money, tens of dollars. Yeah, and I know that the budget budget was like seventeen, and then it went up to twenty four, twenty five, and who knows what the marketing was on top of that. So it might have oh. actually just kind of scraped by. I don't know. It seems like it because it was marketed the house down. So speaking of Star Trek, Patrick Stewart <laughs> recorded the narration for a prologue and epilogue, but it wasn't used in the final film. But the narration is included on the soundtrack album. It sure is. Which I've never listened to. Well, you're going to do that tonight. <laughs> Am I? No. <laughs> no, I'm watching Golden Palace, which is twice as depressing. <laughs> you're watching Golden Palace? Yes. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I finished Golden Girls <laughs> and I'm depressed. So I, I wanted more and now I'm watching Golden Palace and it just makes it worse. It's bad. 
That's not a good show. It's funny in parts of it, but that is not what we're talking about. Margaret Cho was on it, which was like super weird to see her that early. Mm-hmm. Anyway, do you want to talk about the development a little bit? Yeah, because I don't really know a whole lot about the development of this movie. As obsessed with it as I was when I was a kid, like I never bothered to look anything up. But also it was a preteen, so hmm. why would I? Well, we're going to pivot a little bit because I, I kind of want to get into the background of Tim Burton a little bit because this kind of speaks to his beginnings. Okay. Right? And it's also kind of ties into our deep dive from last week. That's right. And I'm not sure. Have we covered a Tim Burton movie before this month? No. We've never deep dove Beetlejuice or any of that. Nope. We yeah. have not. We've been threatening to. Yeah. Well, come some April, we'll probably do Beetlejuice. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah. So Tim Burton's upbringing in Burbank, California, was associated with a feeling of solitude, shockingly. And so the filmmaker was largely fascinated by the holidays during his childhood. And he quote, he's quoted to say, quote, anytime there was Christmas or Halloween, it was great. It gave you some sort of texture all of a sudden that wasn't there before. Oh, Tim. so there were little islands of pleasure for him in a sea of blandness. <laughs> he's a... You're just going to make some friends. There's a lot of people in Burbank. Yeah. And there's another anecdote that he would witness all of the the Halloween decorations being torn down and replaced with the Christmas ones. Mm -hmm. You know, and so that also kind of got his wheels turning. Okay. So at the time, he was employed at Walt Disney Feature Animation, as we know. And he was, I think he was like a a conceptual artist and a background artist. And uh, I don't know what happened. I need to kind of deep dive into this. But at some point, he was allowed to kind of make some movies. And I think Vincent was his short movie that that came out with Vincent Price, his idol, um, separately. Like he did that maybe in his free time. But I need to I need to look that up, too. Yeah, I don't really know anything about the creation of Vincent. But I mean, I know it exists. So after that, I think Disney kind of catapulted him into a more of a creative directional role. Yeah. And so he wrote a... a three-page poem titled The Nightmare Before Christmas, drawing inspiration from uh, the television specials, like we said earlier, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, and the poem A Visit from St. Nicholas. So Burton intended to adapt the poem into a television special originally, with the narration spoken by his favorite actor, Vincent Price, but also considered other options such as a children's book, um, and he created all the concept art and storyboards for the project in collaboration with Rick Heinrichs, who also sculpted character models for him. And Burton later showed his and Heinrichs works in progress to their friend, who also worked at Disney, Henry Selleck, hmm. who was, of course, eventually the director of this uh, and also an animator at the time at Disney. So I do know that after Vincent and before like his bigger work, he made a very small movie called Frankenweenie. We're getting to that. Okay, good. Because I really, really like that movie. Yes. And it was later remade when I don't care for the remake. The 2012 CG remake. Or right. Something. But the original Frankenweenie. Was it CG or was it still stop motion? I think it's still stop motion. It was okay. the same vein as like Corpse Bride, Frankenweenie. Well, it's funny because I think the original was not stop motion. It was no, just filmed so in black and white. It was live action black and white. Yeah. But Vincent was stop motion. Yes. So Tim Burton does have a reference point. For doing stop motion and how tedious it is. Mm-hmm. But um, after the success of Vincent back in 1982, Disney started to consider developing The Nightmare Before Christmas as either like a short film or a 30 minute holiday television special. But the project's development eventually stalled as its tone seemed, quote, too weird to the company. 
And as Disney was unable to offer his nocturnal loners enough scope, (laughs) Burton was fired from the studio in 1984 and went on to direct the commercial successful films Beetlejuice and Batman for Warner Brothers. Stupid, stupid Disney. But I, I, that flip didn't really make sense to me. I was like, why was he fired? Like, what happened? He wasn't, why would he be fired for a movie that was not Disney that he created separately? And then why would he be fired for the concept of something? I'm sure that he was contractually obligated to turn everything over to that corporation. Well, I went, well, I went down a rabbit hole. Okay. Because it didn't sit right with me. So I did a bit more digging and found that Burton was actually fired for production issues with this short Frankenweenie. Hmm. That came out in 1984, which Disney hated and ultimately shelved, although it's been, you know, re-released several times and was ultimately remade in 2012, like we just said. So Frankenweenie. I saw this movie on VHS, and this is well after the popularity of Tim Burton, right? Post Nightmare Before Christmas, I would imagine. Yeah. And you know, by then I had known Tim Burton's name. And so when I saw it, I was like, what the fuck is this? Like Frankenweenie. So I rented this video cassette and watched it and fell in love with it. <clears throat> but this is a Disney film. Like Disney owns yes, Frankenweenie. Mm-hmm. Right. And so hearing this anecdote the story about them firing him right and then like realizing what they fucking lost they're like oh we have this let's just put it out there like oh fucking disney well you know we can't blame the brand right because no, these there's real people that are behind these decisions that's true sometimes down to just one person you know and so you know after seeing like it was released like limitedly i think and he was able to get it in some you know, festivals probably and some private screenings and okay. it was floating around, right? It just wasn't like majorly theatrical release because it was going to be paired with another film, mm-hmm. right? I think like um, back then in the late, in the the 80s uh, and 90s, they were pairing some of their features with some shorts. Yes. Before, kind of like Pixar does now or was doing. Mm-hmm. Not anymore. Yeah. And so um, after seeing Burton's stop motion pet project, Vincent, and his black and white short Frankenweenie, Paul Rubens sought out and hired him to direct Pee-wee's Big Adventure. I didn't realize that Paul Rubens was responsible for, for basically Tim Burton. I thought it was the opposite. So <clears throat> Paul Rubens created the character of Pee-wee Herman. Yes. Obviously. From the, the, the L.A. stand-up group. That, like the Foundlings or whatever? The found, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the Groundlings. Groundlings, yeah. Groundlings that produces like half of SNL and, you know. So, yeah, that, that character is all his, all of it, right? And he went on to wild success, obviously, just based on that one particular character. Which started in the Groundlings, yeah. Yeah, and so, yeah, he, he Tim Burton really got his big, big start with, with that, right? But the thing is, is that even though Paul Rubens, like, created that character, I still feel like Pee-wee's Big Adventure is a very, very Burton movie. Like, well, they handpicked him. <clears throat> Paul Rubens wanted it to be that way. good. And so he handpicked Tim Burton to do it, who was fired, jobless, and was looking to do a full-size movie. I love it. Right? And so Paul Rubens, you know, and so this, this is creating dividends, right? And so the rest is basically the history of studios became impressed with Tim Burton's ability to make hits out of relatively low budgets. Like Pee-wee, uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure was done for $7 million. And Beetlejuice was done for $15 million. Shit. Beetlejuice made a lot of money. Oh, yeah. Have you seen Pee-wee's Big Adventure? Please tell me. Yes. Okay. Way, way, way long ago. Probably 30 years ago. Phew. I fucking love Pee-wee's Big Adventure. You know what? Since we're talking about Tim Burton anyway. That's why I asked you earlier, what would the world be like without Paul Rubens? 
There'd be no fucking Tim Burton, obviously. Maybe, or at least in a different way. Yeah, I mean, like, Tim Burton would have come to pass. You know what I mean? Like, he would have been something. But that that's really, really interesting. And, I mean, like, Tim Burton... I don't remember us talking or gushing about him in the last episode very much, except for like stylized stuff, right? Yeah. But Tim Burton makes fantastic movies. Does he? He used to. I mean, yeah, I think his earlier films are much, much better than his later films, with one exception, which to me is Big Fish, which to me is also his best film. I wouldn't even call that a later film, though. I would still like group that into like... It was 2000s. Burton. And Burton started in the 80s. 80s, I'm, 90s, 2000s in the middle, and 2010s and 20s. Just, you know. There was somewhere along the lines of like the, the mid-2000s that... I started to like get a little like tired of it. It seemed right before and right after big fish, big fish was like stand yeah. standalone. Right. And then he started to kind of decline and it was just all aesthetic and no substance. Yes. After that. I think with the exception of like sleepy hollow, like I really like sleepy hollow and I'm trying to like put that in the timeline. Did you watch the Johnny Depp vampire one that was based off of the dark shadows? Dark shadows? Yeah. I saw it in the theater. I didn't really care for it. You know, and it was right around that time. And I was just like, okay, like I'm kind of over it. You know, it seemed like every fucking movie had Johnny Depp in it and hella bottom Carter. And I guess he was married to her. He is married about to her. Corpse bride. I Corpse think divorced. I haven't seen Corpse bride. Um, okay. but yeah, but like most of Tim Burton's career, he, he makes good movies. And like, you would think that they'd be very, very similar just based on aesthetics, but like his movies are very, very different. I feel like now, not so much, right? Like we just said, but apparently, I mean, like everyone seems to love fucking Wednesday on Netflix, you know? And so like, maybe there's going to be some sort of resurgence or whatnot, or did he ever really leave? Like Tim Burton has always been, no, he's still movies. commanding the box office, yeah. right? It's just, we, we kind of aged out of him. That is probably it. You know, I mean, like, I can only stand so much fucking whimsy, like, every time I watch a movie. But, like, I have not gone back to watch Beetlejuice in quite some time. Like, I actively disliked the Alice in Wonderland stuff he did. But the people that that were the right age when that came out probably have a pretty raging nostalgia boner for it at this point. Oh, I can't stand it. <laughs> I just can't. I, I think it's terrible. I thought Dark Shadows was terrible. I thought the Seems Alice in Wonderland was terrible. Yeah, it's it's all kitsch. It's all kids. Now the production design is amazing. Yeah. I mean, it looks good. And the performances neat. are great. You know, it's just like the story just doesn't work and I just don't care. Yeah. It's just, or, or maybe he's just business. like, he's choosing mediums that I've seen all the, all the time now. I mean, like how many times do I, do I need to see an Alice in Wonderland? It's so weird to me that he directed Big Fish because by far in that movie, it is the most human element of all of his movies. Like it's the most touching and, you know, there's not this icy veneer that separates us between all of his characters. I feel like every genre director has one of those, you know, like Wes Craven did like music of the heart or something. You know what I mean? And so, but even big fish is still Burton-y in parts of it. In parts. Yeah, sure. I like big fish. It makes me cry. I've only seen it one time. I'll probably never watch it. But none of the women have like big dark circles around their eyes, you know? Yeah. Except for the witch. Damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I digress. I mean, I just, I like, I like Burton. Maybe I like early Burton, but movies like Pee Wee's Big Adventure, Beetlejuice, Batman Returns, even Batman to an extent. He owned the 80s and the 90s. He really did. And then his last good film to me was Big Fish. Yeah. That Charlie and the Chocolate Factory movie couldn't suck my balls. I don't care. Although there is a certain level of hilarity in the puppet burn victim unit. (laughs) I always laugh my ass off. It's just... No, 
I would love though. I would love to have future episodes where we talked about some some other Burton movies. Beetlejuice is special. That's around the time when Johnny Depp started annoying the shit out of me. Oh my God, I can't. Every time I see him now, I'm like, no. Anyway, we really digress, but it's okay. I enjoyed it. Uh, but over the years, he would regularly think about the project, and uh, later in 1990. Uh, Burton found out that Disney actually still owned the film rights. Fuck. And so he and Selleck uh, committed to produce a full-length film with the latter as director. Uh, and Burton's own success with live-action films piqued the interest of Walt Disney Studios chairman at the time, Jeffrey Katzenberg, who saw the film as an opportunity to continue the studio's streak of recent successes in feature animation because Disney itself had had a big resurgence in the in the late 80s and early 90s. Huge. Starting with 1989's Little Mermaid, I believe. That's right. Little Mermaid came out and it just fucking exploded. Yeah. And then we have things like Beauty and the Beast getting nominated for Best Picture and winning all that or earning all that money. Yeah. And Aladdin like really fucking killed things. Yeah. They know? had a string there in the late 80s to early 90s where they're still just like some of the best Disney movies that have ever come out as far as animation. I have to give some props to Jeffrey Katzenberg for thinking that this would be an opportunity to continue recent successes in animated features because this doesn't seem like a Disney movie. Really? Well, Disney was looking forward to Nightmare to quote show capabilities of technical and storytelling achievements that were present in like Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is also a really good movie. And uh, Walt Disney Pictures president David Hoberman believed the film would prove to be a creative achievement for Disney's image, elaborating that quote, "We can think outside the envelope. We can do different and unusual things." Yes, you can. Yes, you can do that. Let's wait till Pixar comes around, though. <laughs> <laughs> So as we said, Burton couldn't direct because of his commit to, commitment to Batman Returns and his pre-production work on Ed Wood. Oh, I also like Ed Wood. I forgot about Ed Wood. Yeah. And also, he didn't want to be involved with, like we said, the painstakingly slow process of stop animation, which he, of course, had experienced in Vincent. Yeesh. So per the earlier agreement, his friend and fellow Disney artist, Alum, Henry Selick, took on the job. And then The Nightmare Before Christmas was born. Painstakingly. Painstakingly. Stop motiony. With Tim Burton just saying, how's Muppety. it going? <laughs> Muppety. Drink. Um. <laughs> Quick, move them to the Muppet Burn unit. <laughs> so uh, let's get a little bit into the actual production and okay. design of this. Uh, Selig and his team of animators began production in 1991 in San Francisco. And uh, with a crew of over 120 workers, they utilized 20 sound stages for filming. And at the peak of production, all 20 stages were being used simultaneously. That just fucking makes my head hurt. They must not have been the huge ones, you know. Well, still, that's a lot. And they're all being used concurrently? Yeah. Jesus. I don't know how a director could do that, but... Oh, well, I have a lot of respect for this man. Now. It might have been setups and then him just going to the 20 sound stages. <laughs> I don't know. Holy shit. Right. That is nuts. Yeah. And so the filmmakers constructed 227 puppets to represent the characters in the movie with Jack Skellington having around 400 different heads. Oh, Jesus. Allowing for the expression of every possible emotion. Oh, my God. It is painstaking. So Selleck stated, quote, when we reach Halloween Town, it's entirely German expressionism. When Jack enters Christmas Town, it's an outrageous Dr. Seuss-esque set piece. Yes. And finally, when Jack is delivering presents in the real world, everything is plain, simple, and perfectly aligned. 
I like it. Which I like. So on the direction of the film, Selleck reflected, quote, it's as though Burton laid the egg and I sat on it and hatched it. (laughs) He wasn't involved in a hands-on way, but his hands were in it. It was my job to make it look like a Tim Burton film, which is not so different from my own films. He's right. Which he did. James and the Giant Peach. Mm -hmm. uh, Monkey Bone, which I've never seen. Monkey Bone's funny. Coraline, which is fucking terrifying. I love Coraline. And Wendell and Wild, which I believe just came out this year. I haven't seen Wendell and Wild. It's supposed to be very, very good. Yeah, I think it's on Oscar shortlists. Oh, really? Actually, it was nominated for a Golden Globe this week. So was it short? Uh, was it a short? No, no, no. I mean, shortlist isn't like the ones that people think are going to be nominated. Well, I know. Yeah, yeah. But no, no, it it's, a, it's a feature film. <laughs> okay. Uh, it was. It was nominated for a Golden Globe. So I think... But James and a Giant Peach is certainly Burton-esque. Coraline, also certainly Burton-esque. These, these guys Well, I think that's what they were friends aesthetic. because they had similar styles. Yes. Working for Disney, of all things. Monkey yeah. Bone is a live-action movie, though. Well, I mean, they, they were birthed out of the Black Cauldron, literally. <laughs> <laughs> I think Monkey Bone has Brendan Fraser in it. I haven't seen it in a long time. Yeah, I don't know. It's odd. It's funny, though. But when asked further about Burton's involvement, Sully claimed, quote, I don't want to take anything away from Tim, but he was not in San Francisco when we made it. He came up five times over two years and spent more than no more than eight or 10 days in total. My God. And yet it was called when it was released, Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. Wasn't supposed to be. We'll get into that. (laughs) And you didn't think we had much to talk about. Oh, look, this big stinky episode. No. (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) It sounded better in my head. (laughs) (laughs) So for each second of film, at least 24 photographs of the puppets and sets had to be made in order to achieve the 24 frames per second smoothness of a theatrical release. I never want to make a movie like this. That's like 110,000 photographs or something like that. Fuck all that. So overall, it took three years of production to complete the film due to the nature of the stop motion. And reminder, this movie is only an hour and 15 minutes long. And that makes me even more respectful of Mad God, which is like two something hours or an hour and a half at least. I think it's just a little shy of two hours and a half. Really? Yeah. Mad God? Yeah. I mean, just the amount of shit. Of course, that took like 20 or 30 years to make. Well, and in between projects. Yes. But I mean, like the difference between like this and Mad God, I feel like Mad God's like set pieces are way more intricate sometimes. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, German expressionism is supposed to look like cardboard. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) You can call Star Trek the original show from the 60s. German expressionism. (laughs) Adjacent. (laughs) Cardboard doors opening. Um, That's super impressive, though. Like, I can only imagine making a movie with stop motion animation is got to be fucking difficult like i do not have the kind of patience for that shit like i'm not even quite sure i have the patience to make a regular movie right but something like that i would just be floored and at this point why would you because you can make cg look like stop stop animation i mean but it's cool to look at though and i think at this point like it would be nostalgia obviously yeah right and that's kind of what they were doing here i mean like everything goes back to like those original claymation holiday specials right like we the red reindeer jack frost and all those things mm-hmm. i mean like when i was 13 14 years old when this movie came out i guess it would have been 14 then um like i had already loved those specials like i still love rudolph and jack frost and i watch them you know typically once or twice um every couple years around christmas time but like this movie 
really made me feel like I was watching a really extended version of those specials. Right. And I really, really liked it. The thing is, is that like the Rudolph special is an hour long special. So this movie is not much longer than that TV show. Yeah. So, but it's it's neat. It is a classic. And this is, and I'd almost rather watch it. Yeah. (laughs) I just like that. That one elf wants to be a dentist. I love it. (laughs) And the Island of Misfit Toys. The Island of Misfit Toys. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> anyway, let's talk about the music because it's, you know, a huge part of this. This is my favorite part of this movie. But first, a little history. Okay. Again. So as fans of the band Oingo Boingo, <laughs> Tim Burton and Paul Rubens invited Elfman to write the score for their first feature film, Pee-wee's Big Adventure in 1985. So again, Paul Rubens is also partially responsible at least for danny elfman we owe that pervert a debt of gratitude oh come on he's in a fucking adult sex theater oh i know i mean ugh, come on i have no problems with that i really don't because that's what you go to those theaters to do right. the only reason it was a big deal is because he had a children's show yeah you know? he wasn't like some congressman you know with a wide stance in a stall or something you know? that's right who never get in trouble i have news for you everyone like people who make children's shows have sex so <laughs> it happens. But I do love Ongo Boingo a lot. So they're known for Dead Man's Party, weird science theme, but also this song called Little Girls, which creeps the fuck out of me. Yeah, it's creepy. I like little girls. Oh, it's weird. But I do like Dead Man's Party. Dead love songs. Man's Party. <laughs> it was too creepy to put on a creepy love songs playlist a couple years ago, <laughs> which is still on Spotify, by the way. And we may be having another one of those, so save it. Yeah. <laughs> save it for later. Yeah. I believe it's actually a very film Flamers val- Valentine's Valentine. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it's called. Anyway. So Elfman was initially apprehensive because of his lack of formal training and of never having scored a feature. But after Burton accepted his initial demo of the title of music and with orchestration assistance from Oingo Boingo guitarist and arranger, Steve Bartek, Elfman completed the score to great effect, paying homage to an influential film composers, Nina Rota and Bernard Herman. There is some Bernard Herman all over this. Well, I mean, and it's I love that that this movie kind of secured his kind of style mm-hmm. in a way. And it does have that older orchestration that John Williams was able to achieve back when he did like Jaws and Indiana Jones and Star Wars. I really do love the fucking music in this movie. I really, really like the songs. Because if you listen to about. Oingo Boingo, it sounds like New Wave. It does. It, is. it sounds it is it's, it's not orchestral really. I mean it's completely like synthesizer it sounds like fucking aha or something you know but danny elfman had been making scores too i mean those little girls (laughs) (laughs) weird science on me um uh, i mean he like he did like we talked about in the last episode for batman returns he did the score for wisdom which is a movie that i liked a lot when i was a kid right Mm -hmm. so i mean danny elfman has been making scores for quite some time it's very he like paved the way for trent reznor you know, to do what he's doing today, essentially. Okay. But, I mean, Oingo Boingo had its moment, right? But I feel like Danny Elfman will always be remembered for his, his movie scores, clearly. Right? And Marilyn Manson for Resident Evil. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yes, that's exactly what's going to happen. I saw a meme the other day, though, mm-hmm. that said, I'm going to freak out when people come to me and say, oh my God, did you know that Trent Reznor used to have a band? Or oh something? my God, kill me. <laughs> right? I mean, like, like kids these days are going to grow up and just know of him as making movie scores. And you're like, did you know he had a band? <laughs> like, Go fuck yourself. <laughs> Oingo Boingo. <laughs> Oingo Boingo. Sounds like a character from this movie. 
<laughs> so, um, Elfman described the first time he heard his music played by a full orchestra as one of the most thrilling experiences of his life. I can imagine. I bet. And he found writing uh, Nightmares 11 songs to be one of the easiest jobs he'd ever had. And he said he had a lot in common with Jack Skellington. Is that why... I don't even want to deep dive into that. <laughs> well, I mean, he he's... Jack's he's a weird he's a fucking really... guy, okay? Danny he's... Elfman's... They're all weird. We got Paul Rubens. We got Tim Burton. We got Danny Elfman. Yeah. It's and apparently uh, Henry Selick. You know what I mean? It's like a weird quadrifecta, whatever the fuck you want to call yeah. it. You know? I can imagine what they would have been like when they were teenagers. You know what I mean? Like little sad boys walking around, like writing poems and on black paper with black ink and shit. You know? Like, but they make good movies and they make good music. So I love the fucking songs in this movie. I just do. Yeah, but he started their careers, and then, of course, Paul Rubens hasn't had the best career since then. Uh, he's coming back. He's coming back a little bit, but mm, not quite the careers of Denny Elfman and Tim Burton, that's for sure. Well, I mean, one bad mistake. It's know? like he laid the egg for their career, and then they sat on it and hatched it. <laughs> <laughs> and Paul was busy stroking it. <laughs> Apparently. I, I do have to state that there was uh, a talk about Nightmare Revisited, which was the re-release of the soundtrack in 2008, mm-hmm. which is a cover album of songs and, and, and score from uh, from the movie. And it was released in 2008 by Walt Disney Records. And uh, it had 18 covers and two re-recordings um, of the opening and closing tracks by Danny Elfman. But of course, uh, my favorite track from that is Marilyn Manson's version of This is Halloween. Which is always on my Halloween playlist. I feel like Fallout Boy did a version of that too. Yeah, I think from a, like an earlier one, or maybe an earlier release that had four cover tracks that came out with it back I can't in the early thousands. I'm not sure. But back when, whenever Fallout Boy was relevant, around the same time. I remember liking that album a lot though because I listened to that those covers a lot. Obviously, because I like the songs. You yeah, know? like this is what I watched the movie for, for mostly. And honestly. I had not seen this movie in probably 20 years plus before we watched it for the podcast, right? Mm -hmm. It'd been a long time, but I have, because I'm nerdy as fuck. I have a Disney playlist, like on my Spotify, I have a fucking musicals playlist on my Spotify. And sometimes there's a Venn diagram of them. And Nightmare Before Christmas is part of that Venn diagram. I just love these songs. Yeah. There's quite a good, a few good songs on there. And and actually, there was recently a live televised version um, back in 2021 with Elfman reprising reprising his role as Jack and Billie Eilish as Sally. And I sent you the it was good the video for that, and she did a very good job. And of course, Weird Al as Locke, strangely <laughs> weird. And uh, there's going to be another one soon with Phoebe Bridgers as Sally. <sighs> oh, oh, I'm gonna listen to the fuck out of that. Whoever she is. What? <laughs> I'm gonna come across this table. She's about to go on tour with Taylor Swift. Is she the one that starts with like someday in Germany? Yes. Okay. I can't stand this part of Texas. <laughs> it's in my playlist. <laughs> I love that song. <laughs> Fucking love it. So I'm all about it. I'm gonna go. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> you sound just like her. You could be Sally. <laughs> oh, trust me. I'll be singing that song in the shower. That's a lot of stuff that I did not know about this movie. And I'm glad that you found it because really, I just, I just liked this movie for no good reason and didn't. Well, there's a lot of artistry there and there's good music. Yeah. 
And I mean, like, I've, I don't just think because I've... the story doesn't work doesn't mean it's not a good <laughs> or enjoyable movie. I don't know. I, as much as I love Danny Elfman and I love Oingo Boingo, I've never stopped to, like, think about, like, the start of his career and whatnot. But yeah, that's really cool. But do you have because there's a lot of facts. Do you have any do you have any fun facts left to tell me? Okay. I do. All right. So in February 2019, it was reported that a new Nightmare Before Christmas film was in the works with Disney considering either a stop motion sequel or a live action remake. Oh, God. So in October 2019, Chris Sarandon expressed interest on reprising his role as Jack Skellington if a sequel film ever materialized. Well, of course he is because he doesn't have any work to do. <laughs> For real. Um, live action remake. Don't do it. Please. Stop making the live action remakes anyway, Disney. I don't like them. God, please. Although that would be really terrifying if they did like an actual like true measurements oh of, of jack skellington that'd be fucking terrifying they won't though they'll just make it shitty yeah Maybe. it'll be like johnny depp in a skull mask oh christ it'll make me vomit. they'd be like no chris sarandon only johnny depp <laughs> so the most difficult shot to film in the entire movie is a shot in which jack is reaching for the doorknob to christmas land and viewers can see the perfect surround reflection of the forest around Jack in the background. So they had to do Christmas land and the forest and everything and really photograph, uh, photograph it. Oh my God. I feel like I should pause it now when I watch it. Yeah. Seems like a lot. So the teaser trailer stated that the film was originally intended to be released under the Walt Disney pictures banner, playing the movie heavily as the next generation of filmmaking following in the proud tradition of Walt Disney. However, Disney was worried that the movie would not be suitable for children, so it was first screened for an audience of school kids who were confused by it. And by the time the theatrical trailer was released, Michael Eisner, the then CEO and chairman of the Walt Disney Company, had decided that the film was too dark for kids. Sound familiar? Mm. It was moved to Touchstone Pictures, Disney's sister company, and marketed under the new title, Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas, to reach an adolescent audience. And this has led to a long-time misunderstanding that it was directed by Burton rather than Henry Selleck. I am part of that. Me too. I was an adolescent when this movie came out yeah. and fell in love with this movie and just assumed for my entire life that Tim Burton directed this film. Could you imagine you've spent three years on this with Tim Burton only showing up, you know, basically a week. And then someone throwing his name in front of it. And then Disney be like, nope, it's too dark. And then trying to capitalize on Batman's success and putting Tim Burton's name on it. I would be fucking furious. And to I, this day, Henry Selleck is not a household name. Even no, with the other films that he's done. He's not. I wonder if they're still friends. I wonder the same thing. And Selleck says he still wins many a bar bet wagering that he is the director instead of Tim Burton. <laughs> that's, that's sad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Henry Selleck. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry, man. I do love James and the Giant Peach, though, Henry, if you're listening. So being away from all the hard work of the project also temporarily hurt his relationship, presumably with Danny Elfman. So he chose Howard Shore to score Ed Wood. Danny Elfman is surprisingly missing Mm -hmm. from Ed Wood. Yeah. So it, it damaged some things. So for my final fun fact. Oogie Boogie, not Oingo Boingo, but Oogie Boogie, <laughs> was originally intended to be Dr. Finkelstein in disguise. Oh. Reportedly, Tim Burton was so infuriated by this idea that he literally kicked a hole in the wall. The hole was later cut out and framed by the crew. <laughs> okay. It sounds to me like Tim Burton got a little big for his britches between Beetlejuice and Batman Returns, right? Well, he's working on Batman Returns. He's doing pre-production on Ed Wood. Meanwhile, he's flying out. 
you know, and so he's meeting with these people. Another anecdote that I didn't include was that the person that was writing the movie was like, well, I can write a better ending than we have. And apparently threw him into a screaming rage. So like Tim Burton knows how to get, get what he wants. Um, Another anecdote, uh, you know, a lot of the anecdotes from the original Batman with him refusing anyone, but Michael Keaton playing Batman, which the entire fan base was incredibly inflamed and now they want it him caused, back it literally caused warner brothers stock to go down because oh, they were so pissed off and then of course they got batman and we're happy you know september and was right but you know there was this huge um argument over with the studio that jack should have eyes so that he could emote it's like number one thing in animation you need eyes to emote but he doesn't he doesn't because tim burton got into screaming matches and said well, i'll burn this whole fucking thing to the ground essentially if you if you do this and honestly they should have just taken him off as fucking producer because disney owned it and he wasn't directing it well i don't okay i'm like in between on this a little bit and which is another tangent after fun facts which is doesn't happen that often right um i don't think that jack needs eyes he's a fucking skull first of all right which is fine well, and he emotes had perfectly they had to do 400 different puppet heads just to make his eye holes <laughs> work in an emotive way and it worked i guess but also now i like having learned these things i feel like tim burton's a little fucking petulant and yes and i don't care for petulant and i think he's known for that at least in his earlier career he's a fucking diva yeah oh great okay well you know what i'll gush a little less he's the spoiled self-indulgent nihilistic child that was obsessed with holidays and edgar Allan poe that somehow got to be able to make movies and when he didn't get his way would literally kick into walls. Oh my God. He's that kid that's running around going, I want a pony. Of course, anyone <laughs> can make that all that sound bad, you know? I mean, <laughs> all right. I love those fun facts. I feel like this episode was filled with facts. That's good. Um, but we have some questions to ask about the nightmare before Christmas. And we're going to start with is this movie a horror film? Uh, for a certain age range, I think so. I mean, it's certainly I think for young children. It's definitely horror. It's like gateway horror. Oh yes, I would. So it's more gateway. of a conversation of gateway than it is adjacent because it's meant to be, you know, an entry level horror movie. And I wonder. I can't remember if we talked about this in our top ten gateway horrors. I'm sure he must have mentioned it somewhere. But um, this really is gateway horror, right? And I, I think at the time that I watched it, like I was already like that preteen age, like I was almost about to like start driving and shit like that. And I mean, I just thought it was really good horror adjacency. Yeah. I was drawn to this movie because of its darkness. And I never got to do like those kid horror things, right? And for some reason, I just really gravitated toward this and I liked it. It was just like, this is something that I would have liked when I was much younger. I think I recognized that whenever I saw this movie for the first time. And I just really, really, really loved it. So, Well, I didn't understand. I remember looking at the ads in the comics and they had character posters in the comics that were full page ads and it would be Jack and then it would be Sally at the end or something like that on, on different pages. And I don't even remember seeing the title of the movie. I didn't understand it was for a movie. I just thought it was like for a different comic or something like oh. that. Yeah, it's a weird you know, place or it's a nightmare before Christmas. And I figured it was for another comic because it looked drawn. Uh, the TV ads were also a little misleading now that I think about it. Like they were, they were brief, right? And it just included snippets of dialogue, like the Eureka, you know, like I vividly remember seeing that on TV. I watched the trailer and it's very, disjointed yeah like it's 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 just kind of slapped together 
with just random scenes, mm-hmm. not really telling what it's about or a story, and no. very little of the music. And it's I'm like who the fuck put this thing together? It's like they were just trying to to appease every person in the populace, right? Let's make everyone go watch this movie. They were teasing right? the animation more than they were the right. story or the vibe or what the movie really actually was. I feel like they were really, really frightened about its dark characteristics, right? And they were trying to not show that. I feel like they were trying to make it more of a Christmas movie, even though it came out in October. You know, and I'm like, you know, pick a holiday or pick both, you know? Like yeah. By the time that December rolled around, this movie was well out of the top 10. And I feel with better marketing and better word of mouth or maybe a better release structure, this movie would have made a lot more money than what it did. Yeah. You know, I mean, honestly, I will fucking die on that hill. But uh, were you scared while watching Nightmare Before Christmas? No, don't even ask. I know. I wouldn't even. I wasn't scared then. Except for that fucking clown with the tearaway face. is a little. Yeah. Little, like, well, um, out of five stars, what would you rate the night before Christmas? I give it three and a half. Me too. Like I, there was a time in my life that this would have been a four, four and a half movie. Yeah. And it makes me want to go back to Batman Returns and re-rate it like a four star. <laughs> yeah. And, um, which I did. And I, I don't know. I was, I was like looking forward to watching this because I was like, oh my God, I'm going to like rediscover why I loved this movie so much when I was younger. And that just was not the case. Like I felt bored yeah it's of. not a very interesting movie it's yeah. just not not much is happening it's very simple mm-hmm. and it's style over substance yeah and i mean and when you're younger those things are really good i can see why i liked this movie but as an adult like some of those reviewers saying that there's, there's there's things for adults in here there's not not really no you know like this is not the kind of movie that i'm probably i'm probably not going to watch this movie over and over again now i would almost rather look at pictures of the characters yes. and listen to the soundtrack and yes. be able to walk around and do other things like clean the house or something. You know exactly. I mean? That's I'd it. have a better time. I would, I would have a better time, <laughs> which but, is sad because the animation is so painstaking, you know, and it is. And some it's of it looks so iconic, like him walking down the cliff as it yes. curls out and the moon is behind him. It's an iconic scene, but it looks good, but the story is just not, there it's not there at all. You but know? the music is really good. Like and Tim would, Burton can scream about it all he wants. He can but, kick walls. I don't give a shit. Know? I mean, but like, this movie is not as good as I remember it to be. The music is fantastic. I would rather do dishes and bust out this is Halloween, you know, in my kitchen than sit down and watch this movie. So there's no know. there's no compelling hook for Jack to be obsessed with Christmas. It's just like a surprise, like, oh, Christmas exists. I want to try this. Well and he's and it's just doesn't really you don't get why or the so what. You know, there's there's very little fuel to the engine of this movie. He has like one song about being sad and then he finds Christmas. It happens way too rapidly. I don't know. And I mean, like the, the reason he's sad isn't, you know, he's a board, you know, there's but the, the you know, when when every fucking second of this movie costs, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars because of the time it takes, you have to be very economical, you know, and it's a very economical storytelling, but it doesn't hit as it should. Yeah. For I it agree. to matter. I so agree. I digress. All right, finally, and some would say most importantly, and some would say, why? Who's the hottest guy in Nightmare Before Christmas? Why? (laughs) (laughs) But why, though? (laughs) I just wanted to ask it. Why, though? (laughs) Oogie Boogie. The Wolfman. Oh, yeah. He's in there for like a couple seconds. He's got that flannel on. It's all ripped. Yeah. Right. I mean, there there are a faction of the people. vampires. 
<laughs> they're certainly gay. Uh, there are a faction of people who have this like weird Disney fetish. You know what I mean? Like they think Disney guys are cute. Have you ever been one of those? No. Have you, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm not into cartoons. I've never watched a movie, a cartoon film and thought, oh my God, they're super attractive. I mean, like no shame. The closest for me was probably at the end of Beauty and the Beast when he turns into a man. Oh my God. Yeah. It could be the one. At first I was like, his face looks weird because <laughs> he's got like this upturned nose or whatever. But then you're like, oh, because it's the contrast, you know, it's that reveal. Like this is a handsome man, you know, because because Belle has to believe it. So you have to as well. So they were like, let's draw this guy as hot as we possibly can. I mean, no kink shame, obviously. Like, And then poor Dan Stevens was cast. <laughs> what a terrible stop making live action movies, Disney. Stop it. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know what to say after that. I don't we didn't pick you. anyone. <laughs> no one. There's no one to pick. So <laughs> boingo, boingo. Boingo, boingo. I think that just about wraps up our conversation on The Nightmare Before Christmas and also wraps up our month on Christmas horror adjacency, which I'm sure that we will be talking about again next December. Or maybe we'll just go back to straight horror next December. Who knows? Only time will tell. But stay tuned for next month when we get real fucking wintry and start talking about The Thing. Oh, hell yeah. I cannot wait. We are ready to do that. We're going to do a triple trifecta triptych <laughs> of the thing because we're covering the original thing the and thing then 1982's thing. And yep. then over on Patreon, I believe we are doing the prequel. The horrible, horrible prequel. Which isn't as bad, I don't think, as, as we recall. Just the effects are just horrible. No, I've watched it within the last couple okay. of years. It's not <laughs> great. Look forward to that. Great. Uh, but yeah, we have lots, lots coming out for you in January, and we still have a little bit more coming out in December. So head over to patreon.com slash the film flamers and join the family over there. And you will get this month's bonus episode where we're talking about the mid 2000s Black Christmas remake, which is the most trashy fun. Okay, I'm excited. I hope so. I'm excited to watch it again. I've seen it several times. Nice. Um, as always, we need those reviews, guys. So head over to Apple Podcasts or iTunes, leave us a five-star review, and tell us why you like us. We're going to read that on Shooting the Flames. And also, you can go and rate us on Spotify. And, everybody, we like to know what you think about our episodes. So you can follow us and let us know on social media, at the Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And you can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or call our hotline at 972-666-7733. We just made a podcast episode longer than the actual movie. Oh my god. Blow it, Bone Daddy. Mm, the story economics of our podcast. <laughs> the wheels of it. <laughs> it was girthy. Kind of makes me sick. <laughs> Kind of makes me want a hot dog real bad. <laughs> oh my god. All right, Chris. With all that being said, I think it's time to uh, go off and have a nightmare before Christmas actually happens. For real. And maybe after that, we can get some. Get some. <laughs> Sweet, Sweet dreams. dreams. Did we just really make a sex commercial pun out of a children's movie? <laughs>
Well, I was trying to pick the hottest guy in it, so I mean... We tried. What's wrong with me? I don't think we succeeded. We did, and we failed. Miserably. Miserably. Kind of like the movie. <laughs>